Good morning to you all. It's Lord's Day morning. It's good to see you this morning as we gather in the Lord's house to sing His praise, to meet with Him, to seek His face in prayer together, and now to hear His word to us. Our Old Testament reading is Daniel chapter 7, 9 through 14. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. Brothers and sisters, this is God's very word, so let's give it our full attention now. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then, because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." Our New Testament reading is Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray now together. Lord, you have the words of life. To whom else shall we go? Lord, apart from your word and spirit working in our hearts, we will be dead. Grant us life. Grant us faith. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear and grant us trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. In 1937, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer looked around at the church around him in Germany and was frustrated with how nominal it all looked, with what he saw as a lack of real discipleship. And he wrote a a classic work, a workbook which has become so well known, called The Cost of Discipleship. And in the opening chapter of the book, he says this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. 
Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Bonhoeffer is on to something there, isn't he? Talking about discipleship. He's right that Jesus comes and he does come preaching grace, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven for the poor in spirit, for the spiritually bankrupt to come and and find their salvation fully and freely in him. But at the same time, Jesus comes and says, take up your cross, follow me, deny yourself, put yourself to death on the cross, follow me. Bonhoeffer writes elsewhere in the same book, he says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's what discipleship is. In Matthew 8, in our, in our text here this morning, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, we are in the middle of this section of Jesus' ministry where he's been showing his great authority. We saw this last Sunday, last Lord's Day morning. We saw that he has been showing his authority in great works of healing. Right? He touches the leper, and immediately the leper is cleansed. Uh, he goes, he speaks a word, and immediately the centurion's servant is healed. He goes and he touches Peter's mother-in-law and immediately she stands up and her fever leaves her. And he's showing, he's showing his awesome authority and power. Following the text we're reading this morning, the text we're looking at this morning, he's going to go on to show more authority. Not only over sickness, but over, uh, over the, the, uh, the storm that's on the sea. And then he's going to go on and show his authority to cast out demons and to forgive sins and to heal. So in all these ways, he's showing his great authority. And in the middle of all this on his great authority is this little section on discipleship, embedded right here in the middle of all this stuff on his, on his great authority. And it's, it's, it's as though Jesus is saying, yes, my authority is great. It's, it's limitless. I have authority over sickness and death and storms and, and, and demons. But my authority also demands something of you, that you come and follow me, that you give yourself to me. That His authority means that when we come to him, he's the great king. And so when we come to him, we don't hold back anything from him. We come to him in faith. We become part of his kingdom of heaven. And that means we give our whole lives over to him. He has no room for halfway discipleship. In his kingdom, Jesus doesn't put out uh, different membership options, right? There's the $5 a month uh, membership, the $10 a month membership, and for the real elites, 100 bucks a month uh, if you really want a good place in the kingdom. And he doesn't do that. It's either discipleship or nothing at all. Jesus was surrounded by people who were very curious about it, very interested to see what he would say next, what he would do next, but who were not ready to die to themselves and follow him. And we see this all around us too, don't we? People want security of salvation. 
But they don't want the cost of discipleship. People want peace of conscience, right? But not, you know, I've got to give my life over in self-denial to holiness for the Lord's sake. Right, we want heaven, but we also want the good life this world can offer at the same time. We want the crown, but not the cross. This isn't just around us. This is in our own hearts, isn't it? That, that much of the time that we, we fail to see how much following Jesus will cost, we fail to recognize how much following Him is worth. We fail to see how much it costs and be ready to, to pay that cost. And we fail to see how much He's worth. And it's these two things that Christ addresses here in Matthew chapter 8 and these verses. These two questions are going to frame this sermon this morning. What does he cost? What does Jesus cost? And second, what is he worth? First, what, what will he cost? The scene here in Matthew eight eighteen begins with Jesus surrounded by crowds you think you'd like that, right? What, what preacher or teacher doesn't want a big audience, a big, a, big, a big crowd, a full church? These early days of his ministry look like success. Whole crowds, whole towns are flocking out to see him. The countryside is stirred up. Multitudes are surrounding him. But of course, that's not what Jesus wants. Just crowds of people. He has compassion on the crowds, we read. He wants to proclaim the gospel to many, but at the same time, what he wants is not just bare fame. One writer says, nothing was less aimed at by our Lord than to have followers unless they were genuine and sound. So as evening comes on here, Jesus commands his close group of committed disciples to get their boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's leaving the crowds because he's on a mission not to win popularity, but to proclaim the kingdom everywhere uh, uh, throughout Israel. And he wants to focus his teaching on his 12 disciples. So he's going across the Sea of, of Galilee. But even as they're getting ready for this trip across the lake, a scribe comes up to him. Now, immediately there's a, there should be a warning that goes up as we're reading Matthew's Gospel, because the scribes are never the good guys in Matthew's account. Um, they're always with the, they're always those who are attacking Jesus. Uh, these are the ones who are experts in the Old Testament Scriptures. They know their Hebrew Bible back to front, uh, experts in Jewish tradition, and usually they reject what Jesus says, and they call him a blasphemer. But this scribe has been listening. He's been watching. Uh, maybe, what's, what's attracting him to Jesus? Maybe he's just in awe of Jesus' authority, right? We read in the Sermon on the Mount that the, the people responded, this man speaks as one with authority, not like our scribes. And here's a scribe, and he's, I've never heard someone teach like this or preach like this before. Maybe Jesus' preaching has struck on some, some kind of nerve with him. Maybe he's just in awe of Jesus' ability to heal Maybe he, maybe he sees that, uh, that, that this is a way for himself to get ahead and advance. He comes up to Jesus, the scribe comes up to Jesus, and he says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? I'll follow you wherever you go. Isn't that what we, we should say to Jesus? It sounds sort of like Ruth going up to Naomi. I'll, I'll never leave you. I'm going to stick with you and with your God. Or, or Peter saying to Jesus, I will, I will follow you to the death. I'll die for you if I have to. This sounds like a radical disciple, an eager disciple, this scribe here. But Jesus sees his heart. 
and he detects something in him which suggests to him that this scribe doesn't really understand what he's saying. And this, uh, this that we, we, we can detect it right off the bat. He, he calls Jesus a teacher. Now, sometimes people use that title for Jesus in, in the other Gospels as a term of respect for him. But in Matthew's Gospel, only the opponents of Jesus call him teacher. None of his true disciples in Matthew call him teacher. Uh, so this might be it. The scribe is refusing to acknowledge that Jesus is the true Messiah and Lord and King of this kingdom. He's a teacher to him, but not the Lord. I think the key question for us to ask as we look at this scribe coming up to Jesus and Jesus' uh, hesitancy to receive him as a disciple is, what does this scribe want from Jesus? Right? Is he just curious about him? Just interested in in a curious kind of way? Just impressed with him? Just calculating his own best advantage, right? Jesus has the big crowds. The other scribes are going out of business. I'm going to put my lot in with Jesus. The text doesn't tell us, but it seems to suggest in Jesus' response to him that what this scribe doesn't want is Christ himself for his own sake. That he's not ready to be poured out like a drink offering like Paul was in coming to Christ. This is a crucial question, loved ones, that we also need to ask ourselves. What do you want from Jesus? Too often we want him tailored to fit our personal agenda and our needs and our interests and our, and our desires. A, a Savior fitted to our life, not our life fitted to him. A personal assistant, a therapist, a counselor, a, an insurance policy, but not a Lord and a, and, and a king. We want something from him, but not him for his own sake. Jesus detects this in this scribe, it seems, So he says, to test him, he says in verse 20, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus doesn't soften the blow. He doesn't doesn't hide the cost of discipleship in the footnote at the bottom in fine print. He puts it right there in bold at the the front, at the top of the page. If you're going to come and follow me, it's going to cost you your basic necessities and your basic rights and your creature comforts. Jesus, in one level, is speaking literally here, isn't he? He's about to get in a boat and go across the sea and, 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 and sleep with his head on the stern of the boat. He doesn't have a house of his own to live in. He's traveling from town to town. He's sleeping under the stars. This isn't an easy life in his earthly ministry. But he means more than that, doesn't he? Right? Not just that it's going to be hard for these three years of following him in his earthly ministry, uh, but that what, what, he's, what he's calling, what, what, what his calling is, is a life of sacrifice unto death, and that those who follow him have the same cost. Jesus points us to this, that he means more than simply just, uh, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a home or a, or a bed. He, 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 he points us to this by calling himself the Son of Man. He says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's an important title in Matthew. He uses it over and over uh, in the book of Matthew. It's, it's Jesus' favorite title for himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man over and over in the gospel some 80 times. 
What does he mean with this expression? There's debate on this. Um, Lots of debate on it, but um, I think if we look at the Old Testament Scriptures, two things become clear about what the Son of Man is, but what Jesus means by saying, I'm the Son of Man. Uh, The first comes to us from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, There in Daniel 7, we read this earlier, but in, in verses 13 to 14, we read about the Son of Man, and it describes him like this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the son of man in Daniel 7 is the great end-time king of Israel coming in all his glory with all that authority of God himself to establish the kingdom. It's the Christ. It's the Messiah. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of man, that's, what he has, that's part of what he has in mind. I'm the Christ. I'm the king. I'm the Messiah. Right? And we've seen his great authority. Matthew's been highlighting that for us in, in, in Matthew chapter 8. His power over all creation. He's the Son of Man, the King who comes with with divine authority. But there's more to this title, Son of Man, in the Old Testament. There are other places in the Old Testament where it doesn't bear this great sense of kingly glory and authority, but actually lowliness, even creatureliness and suffering, humility. Psalm 8, for example, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? The psalm is saying, God is so high and glorious and the son of man is so creaturely and low. psalmist looks at God's greatness and he feels how small, insignificant, and weak human beings are. So Son of Man, according to Psalm 8, highlights the weakness of man, the smallness and humility of man. And we see this used. God uses this same title a lot in Ezekiel for the prophet Ezekiel. He says, he calls him Son of Man over and over in Ezekiel. And he's highlighting, you're a creature. I'm the creator. So if we take these two things, what does Jesus say? I'm the Son of Man, he says, right? He's saying, I'm the Son of Man, the King of glory from Daniel 7, come to establish the kingdom and reign with God's own authority. And I'm the humble, suffering servant. A mere man. Come to lay down my life in obedience to the Father. Right? He's the great Messiah. But he's the Messiah who's come to suffer and die for sinners. Jesus is therefore, I think, saying to the scribe something like this, I am the long-awaited Messiah, the king with divine authority, prophesied in Daniel 7, but my mission is not what you think. My mission is not to topple the Romans and conquer the world by military might. I'm not here to claim the throne of Israel and lead the Jewish people out of subjection and build an earthly kingdom here and now. I'm the Son of Man, and that means I'm here 
to take on weakness and the, the frailty and the suffering of my people and, 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 and to bow my neck to the yoke of obedience to God to suffer and die for sinners. And listen, scribe, if you're going to follow me, you've got to do the same thing. Jesus' whole life on earth is downward to the cross, downward to the grave, before it then rises up in glory. And he's saying to us, if you're going to follow me, that's the same pattern your life will take. The whole trajectory of your life in union with Christ is first down, then up. To follow Christ is to give up all claim on your own life. Give up a claim to an earthly home if we have to. Give up a place to lay our head at night if we have to. Give up everything to Him because He claims the whole of our lives. That's what it means to be a faithful disciple of Christ. John Calvin puts it well in his commentary. He says, The scribe wishes indeed to follow Christ, but dreams of an easy and agreeable life and of dwellings filled with every convenience. Whereas the disciples of Christ must walk among thorns and march to the cross amidst uninterrupted afflictions. The scribe seems as if he wished to fight in the shade and at ease, neither annoyed by sweat nor by dust, and beyond the reach of the weapons of war. Let us therefore look upon ourselves as warned to consider early what sort of condition awaits us. The first lesson which Jesus gives us on entering his school is to deny ourselves and take up his cross. It's a high cost. Is it worth it? Is he worth it? That's the second question. The scribe came to Jesus over-eager and unaware of the cost of following him. But now in the text we see something different. In the next person who comes to him, here we see one of Jesus' disciples. He's, the category of disciple can either mean you know, the, the close, committed group or, or the kind of wider entourage following Jesus, listening to his teaching. And here's one of these disciples who's kind of on the fringe. And he comes to Jesus. And he's not wondering here how much following Jesus will cost. He seems to be wondering if it's worth it to follow him. He wants to follow Jesus, but he has something else he wants to do first. Right? He, he, he wants Jesus. Jesus is important to him, but something else is first for him. He comes up to Jesus. He says, first let me go bury my father. Seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? Jewish tradition, Jewish custom required a son to take care of his parents and an important part of honoring your father and mother, according to the fifth commandment, as, as, as they believed, was to be there to bury your parents. Children were expected to do this. So in a sense, we'd say this disciple is doing a good thing. He's not asking the Lord for permission to sin. He's saying, let me go fulfill this, this other duty, this other obligation. And it's not clear from the text here if this man's father had just died already um, or, or if he was waiting for his father to die. It might have been, he might have been asking Jesus for an extension of a day. He might have been asking for an extension of three years. It's not clear. But either way, the thing that he's saying, the fundamental request he's making of Jesus is, you wait for me 
Let me first do this other thing. Let me put this first. You'll be a close second. Brothers and sisters, right? do you say that to Jesus? I'll follow you. But first, fill in the blank. Right? First, let me pursue my career the way I want to. First, let me pursue this relationship that I want to. I'll follow you, Jesus, but it's going to be on my pace and on my terms. You'll be important, but you're not going to be king. You're going to be a close second to my dream and my agenda for my life and my relationship with my wife and my children and my parents. How does Jesus answer this halfway disciple? Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. How harsh! Right? Those are shocking words. Only Jesus can say that because of who He is. He says to the disciple here, never mind your father. Let those who are spiritually dead, those who don't know Me, don't trust Me, aren't following Me, let them take care of the physically dead. You follow Me. He doesn't mean we shouldn't honor our parents. Right? He doesn't contradict Scripture. He upholds the fifth commandment. Elsewhere, we see him, for example, in Mark 7, 11, uphold the command to honor our parents. And he might be using hyperbole here to get this disciple's attention. But he is reminding us something important, that, that the fifth commandment is not the first commandment. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, to have no other gods before him. Jesus claims that absolute priority and devotion. He didn't come from heaven to die for us, to be a close second, but to be first. And he calls us to love him so much that all other loves look like hatred by comparison of our love for him. That's what the call of discipleship is and the call of faith is. To forsake everything and take him Essentially, right, the question Jesus is saying, is, is putting to this disciple here is, what am I worth to you? You've heard my teaching, right? What am I worth to you? You've seen what I've done and these miracles I've done. What am I worth to you? We've heard it too, haven't we? We've been working through Matthew for some time. What is Jesus worth? What, is, what do we get in Jesus Christ? It costs so much to come to him. Lay down your life. Take up your cross. Follow me. Is it worth it? Is he worth it? What does Jesus give us? We could look at the Beatitudes, right? And the rewards, the blessings that are promised to those who come to Christ in the Beatitudes. Is it worth it to follow Christ? Well, he promises the kingdom of heaven to those who follow him. He promises comfort, every sorrow soothed, every grief undone for those who follow him. Forgiving your sins, bringing you home to heaven so that no sorrow, past, present, or future can touch you. That's what He gives those who come to Him. He promises that those who come to Him will inherit the earth, share in the very same inheritance that He gets from His Father, that the whole abundance of creation will be laid at Christ's feet and at the feet of those in Christ. He promises that those who come to Him will be made righteous, will be clothed with His own righteousness and stand before God justified. 
the image of God perfectly restored, free from sin forever in His kingdom. He promises mercy, every sin erased, guilt gone, everything forgiven. The mercy of healing as well in the resurrection at the last day. Full restoration, full peace, body and soul. He promises us that we'll see God if we follow Him. We'll behold God. We'll see Him as He is in all His glory and beauty and perfection. And we'll worship Him forever. Delighting in Him, He says, that we'll be called sons of God if we come to Him and follow Him. That we'll have God as our Father to love us, care for us, provide for us. He promises an exceedingly great reward. And He says, it's all found in Me. All these things that Jesus offers, they're not gifts that he, that he gives apart from Himself. They are found in Him. It's found in a relationship with Him. Is He worth it? Is, all that, is, is getting all that in Christ, having Him, Himself, as your Savior and your friend and your King, is it worth it? Absolutely. Every bit of it. Samuel Rutherford's hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, has a wonderful line where he is talking about uh, the glories of coming to heaven and finding Christ as our reward. He says, It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. If I had to suffer it all seven times over, it'd still be worth it. So yes, Jesus calls us to the life of discipleship. A hard life of being poured out like a drink offering of laying down our lives, taking up our cross, and following Him. Not just the possibility of those things, but the actual experience of those things for everyone who comes to Him. But He holds out to us Himself. And thus, Matthew leaves us here with a question ringing on our ears. Will you follow Him? Right? He doesn't tell us what happens to the scribe or the disciple. Maybe it would be nice to know. But that's not really the point of this story. We don't know if the scribe counted the cost and said, you know what, I'm all in. Or if this other disciple said, you know what, Lord, you're right. You're priority number one. I'm going to follow you. I'll leave my father. Matthew turns the attention on, on us. And what we'll choose and where we'll put our trust. He says, will you follow Christ? Consider the question, brothers and sisters. Have you decided to follow Christ and put your faith in Him and follow Him as your Lord? Maybe you think, well, not like that. Yes, in a sense, right? I'm a member. Maybe you're a member here. You know, though, that discipleship looks like something more than you're doing. That what you're doing is more like the halfway hesitant discipleship. There are things, there are habits in your life you don't want to let go of, uh, things, things you don't want the Lord to change, uh, commandments of His that you, that you don't really want to submit yourself to, inconveniences that He calls you to that you ignore. You keep on saying to Christ, first let me go, whatever it is. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me, I'm first. Maybe you think, well, you know, I am a disciple of Christ. I'm a committed follower of Christ. I'm a member of the church and I come regularly and I serve diligently in the church. I do a lot and I, and I sacrifice and serve in this way and in that way. But is your heart in it too? Or is, is your heart wedded to Christ? The scribe in here in Matthew 8 probably looked like a pretty good disciple outwardly. 
But he, he did the right things. He, he did serve. He did teach. But was he a disciple of Christ? Was his, was his heart bound to Christ? That's what discipleship is at the root. Yes, it's, a, it's an outward service, but it's an inward heart commitment to Christ first and foremost. Following Christ means you count the cost, deny yourself, take up your cross, embrace Him, embrace the road of humiliation and suffering that comes with embracing Him, listening to His word, every word, every commandment. It's to have an open-ended obedience, to write Him a blank check of obedience. Lord, You fill in the amount. To do it gladly, joyfully. Are you doing that? If you're like me, you're saying, well, no, but that's what I want to do. Right? Yes, in part by the Lord's grace, but oh, I want to do it more. I need the, the, the grace of, of God. If we're honest with ourselves, we're all failures as disciples, aren't we? We're all, we've all been half-hearted disciples. We complain about following Christ. We balk at the self-denial. We put a hundred other things before Him. And we're not alone in that, right? Every single one of Jesus' disciples in the Gospels does the same thing, don't they? We see these two examples of hesitant discipleship here. But if we read on in the story, right? Every one of the twelve is going to abandon him at some point. The cost is going to get too much for them at some point. Something else is going to come first for them at some point. Some stick with him longer than others, but eventually, right, they all flee when it comes down to it at the end of the Gospel So the good news that Jesus Christ holds out to us is that He died for failed disciples. He came to save disciples who fail. He didn't come to call the righteous. He didn't come to call perfect disciples, but sinners to Himself. It's not our discipleship that saves us. It's His grace for us that saves us. It's that He lived for me. He lived that life, right? His cross saved me, not my cross that I, that I take up when I follow Him. His obedience is what I'm counting on. This is illustrated so powerfully for us in the life of Peter. Peter was a lot like the scribe we saw here in Matthew 8. We see in, um, at, the end, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 26, as Jesus is telling His disciples that He's going to die, Peter says to Him, Lord, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. A few hours later, Peter is lying that he ever knew Jesus. Right? He's denying ever knowing Christ at all. Does Jesus then rise from the dead and go to Peter and say, you're not worthy to be my disciple because you didn't count the cost and you didn't put me first? No, he comes to him. He singles him out. He seeks him out. And by His grace, He restores him. He says, come back. Interestingly, the last words that Jesus speaks to Peter recorded in John's Gospel are these. You follow Me. Failed disciple, receive grace. Come follow Me. That's what Jesus says to Peter. That's what He says to us. And with such a Savior, won't we follow Him? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You for Your grace to us in our Lord Jesus Christ that, that He calls us. He didn't come first to condemn, but to call us 
to salvation in Him. Father, we pray that You would forgive our failure to follow Christ faithfully and that You'd fill us with love for Him and a renewed commitment to follow Him faithfully, to count the cost, to see how much our Lord Jesus is worth, and to follow Him wherever He goes. Give us grace for this, O Lord. Our eyes are on You. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.